What a joy it is to read two of my very favorite passages of Scripture to you, some of my very favorite people on earth. Um, God is so good to give us his word and each other. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you as angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Ephesians 3, 7 through 21. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Eve. Uh, will you pray with me, please? We're looking for that manifold wisdom of God to be put on display to rulers and to authorities. We're looking for solutions to the great problem of ourselves and the times in which we dwell. And so we come to you, our great benefactor, pleading for you to help us not be amnesiacs, pleading for you to help us not be so plagued with self-importance that we cannot trust you and remember all your benefits. Will you satisfy our desires, even now, with good things? Will you renew our youth like the eagles? Will you forgive our sins and heal our diseases? Will you redeem lives, even now, from pits? Will you crown us? with compassion, with the cushions of your great comfort, even now, Lord Jesus. Come be with us. Come help us. When I open my mouth, let words be given me for the benefit of these you adore. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I read an article, and in it, a father had left his family, and the little boy was reported to have said to his daddy, why did you have to quit in the middle? Why did you have to quit in the middle? And that little statement has always lodged in me. It reverberates, perhaps partly because I, by my own context of growing up and the, some of the things that happened there, had this explicit and implicit determination upon getting married and having children. I didn't want that statement to ever be said that I had quit in the middle. I'm not going to quit in the middle. Coming to a church, as I was called to this prized community, and on April Fool's Day, 2001... You decide what that means. And we came that summer right out of seminary, age 28. Kathy was 27. It would be important to say, probably. And we had a nine-month-old little guy. And though not a marriage, not altogether dissimilar from one, was established when a pastor and a congregation 
become tethered together. We just did this with Corby, and when he became associate pastor, there were, there were vows taken. He pledged himself to the Lord and to you by vow. You pledged yourself to the Lord and to him by vow. It's something that I've wanted to take rather seriously. You can judge if I have. And the Lord ultimately can judge. And I'm thankful that he does not pay us according to our iniquities. But that statement, how can you quit in the middle, is part of what Corby said in the call to worship. I wasn't here, but I heard it at Lula if you did the same one. The difficulty of taking off for this sabbatical of experiencing this cessation from normal duties feels a little bit like quitting in the middle because everybody here is in process in some way and I am in process with some of you in all kinds of different ways and at all kinds of different levels. The Apostle Paul has assured the Philippian church that God who began a good work and them was going to carry it out to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. And there ain't nobody in here who's not somewhere in between the began a good work and the carry it out to completion. Everybody is underway. And we are underway as a church. And so it feels odd to have so much affection for so many. For all but like three of you have a great affection. That's a joke. If you think you're one of the three, you're probably not. (laughs) I'm just being silly, guys. But it does feel weird because you matter to me. And I sense that I matter to you. And so just Scotty beam me up and out does feel a little strange. And so It leads me to ask the question, and I've pondered it some in anticipation of leaving and pondered it in how I'm going to steward my own responsibility disorders as I begin this sabbatical by looking at Psalm 103 and wondering what would it take? What does it take to be able to rest? What does it take to be able to stop your normal duties? What does it take, not just to take a sabbatical, but for you to take the Lord's Day off or to go to bed at night or to say no to something that seems important? What does it take? And that's a question I'm asking of myself. And it occurs to me that quite simply, Psalm 103 gives us a good little prayerful access point to what's required to be able to rest in any capacity. And then just looking at the beginning, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We're mainly going to camp there for a little bit. What do you have to do to be able to rest? Dave Hansen has said, that we argue against the Sabbath command more than all the others. It's interesting, isn't it? The one command where God says, you don't have to work all the time. And we're like, no, 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 no. What do you mean? 
Can I go for a long walk? Can I mow the grass? Can I study if I have an exam? Can I go in for a meeting? Can we play baseball? Nobody says, what do you mean you can't murder? Can I kind of kill him? What if I use just a knife? Nobody argues about that. They're like, okay, no murdering. Got it. But the Sabbath command, the command where God says, knock off your labors. Let yourself as a community be characterized by such a profound level of trust that while everybody else is working their fingers to the bone, you're kicking your feet up on that one day out of seven, and you're still going to have as much as everybody else. You'll get a double portion on Sabbath when you're wandering around in the desert, for instance. But we argue against it. And why do we argue against it? Why do I argue against it? Why do I feel nervous about leaving for the summer? Why do I feel nervous about taking a generous gift from you? Well, I think one reason is because we have had unpleasant experiences with ourselves when we're not doing things incessantly. At least three or four of you have had this. If you have watched the Peaky Blinders, and I hope you haven't, and I'm not recommending it, but Thomas Shelby from Birmingham is a World War I vet. He's tortured of soul, not only because of his wartime experience, but because he's also the head of an organized crime gang, so he routinely does things to torment and destroy his soul, violence and robbery and thievery and all the rest. But he has this sickness, he's told he should rest. And while he's resting, he is tortured. He's unwell. He has to use drugs. He, is, he can't stand it. His, all this stuff comes at him. His conscience flares and blares. At one point, his secretary comes in and says, Mr. Shelby, you don't look like yourself. He goes, ah, Francis, I know what this is. No, no, I must call the doctor, she says. I'm getting like British and Irish now. (laughs) And she says, I'm calling the doctor. And he goes, no, no, Francis, this is just myself talking to myself about myself. I know what this is. This is just myself talking to myself about myself. One of the reasons we have a very difficult time resting, and by resting I mean ceasing from normal labors. If you don't want to get too technical about it, why do you have a hard time resting from your phone? Like just sitting there for five minutes, much less four months. I'm not planning to sit there for four months, by the way. But why is it hard not to look at your phone? Why is it hard to just sit there? Because of yourself. Talking to yourself. About yourself. Does it say a lot of good things to you? Reassuring things, comforting things. You're sitting there and you're like, man, you're nailing it. Knocking it out of the park. There's probably never been a mother as great as you are. Holy cow. Wow. Your vocational life is humming. You've got plenty in retirement. You can't believe it. Your health is perfect. Man, you're doing great. Your life matters. 
You count. Your faith is vibrant. Is these, these the kind of messages you get to yourself when you're by yourself with yourself? That's why I like the Psalms. Because they teach me how to deal with myself. Because there are very unpleasant experiences I have. Dark experiences I have when I'm off alone. But that's why, why prayer is so vital to me. Because the, the psalmist reminds me to bring God into the viewfinder of my focus. Reminds me to bring God into this conversation that I'm not just having a conversation of myself with myself about myself. That when myself is tortured and troubled and anguished and tormented and just can't figure out what to do, the way out is never self-solved. The way out is out. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's commanding. If I'm going to talk to myself, I'm going to tell my heart where to go. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I can't heal my sins, and I can't heal yours. And I can't forgive, I can't heal diseases of mine or yours, forgive sins of mine or yours. I can't satisfy mine or your desires with good things or renew your youth like the eagles. And that's not Don Henley's band. It's eagle with an apostrophe S. But God does these things. And we've just celebrated that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ who has defeated death for us. And who has said, I come that you might have life and life to the full. And the question for all of us in our busyness and all of us in our constant distraction is, will we notice that we have a benefactor? who's holding out benefits that we may be forgetting, that we may be clenching our fists, that we may just be not looking for when they're right there for us. So to be able to rest, I think you you got to get over having, you got these negative experiences with yourself that remind you I need to tell my soul to praise the Lord. I think we also argue about the Sabbath command. We also argue about rest. We're also reluctant to let down the things that we do because this is where we get our self-definition. My favorite nickname. I've had some good nicknames. I like the nicknames I've been given, I should say. I don't know if they're any good. I like them. I had one nickname growing up. Doesn't make any sense to me. Big E. I guess it was ironical. No, it was utterly literal, okay? But when they started calling me that, it should have just been tall E. This wasn't that big. I was just tall. I was like in the eighth grade, and they started calling me that. So that, I like that one. In college, they called me Viking. Boozer sometimes still calls me Viking. as a throwback. I had hair, long hair, blonde. I was fitter than this. I didn't, I didn't conquer any territories or pillage anyone. It was a look, I think. Viking, that was pretty good. It felt pretty honoring, I think, if violent overtones, undertones. But when I was working at a software company, this guy called me the go-to guy. Oh, yeah, I like that one. Go-to guy. Yeah. Well, what are you if you're the go-to guy and you're not doing your work anymore? Or if you're a guy who likes to come through and who loves, really, really loves helping people. I didn't make myself that way. God made me that way, but I really like it. 
And there's dual motivations and all of that. But I like it. And like, you don't have it anymore. Well, then what are you? That's why God wants us to stop working sometimes, I think. To find out that we might be more than our work. Or might be more than the ways we want to self-define. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And I can start to remember, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually an enormous amount of freedom when I'm not living with my work to make sure that people praise the big E. But to praise the Lord. That's why I exist. That's where my happiness is. That's where my delight is. That's where my satisfaction is. Am I orienting my life that the Lord might be praised? And the Lord can sure be praised a lot more when I'm, when I'm resting and He's not. To be able to rest, I've got to be able to deal with myself. And that means learning to get God back in the picture. And it means that self-concepts have to be defined by whose we are and not by what we do. Not merely by what we do. The psalmist gives me, gives us something else besides praising the Lord. It's just this simple thing. Forget not all his benefits. It's a call to remember. It's a call to notice. A call to not let good things go by unnoticed and to recognize the source of all the gladness, the source of all the sustenance, the source of all that has happened. My first sabbatical was an unplanned one. And it was harshly imposed. It was 2004, and I relocated for a time to Erlanger Hospital, the best place to sabbat. A 60-day Shabbos. And in that two-month period in Erlanger Hospital, that I reckoned with a, with a great deal of hopelessness. Remember, Friday would come, and I thought, well, another week has passed, and I'm entering into the darkness of nothing getting better, and now I've got two more days of just a holding pattern where I think that the plan seems to be just make sure they don't die, and everybody will be back on Monday. And the loneliness of that and the pain of that and the thought that I'm not getting better. And Kathy was pregnant with this 14-year-old right here now. And Kayla was four. Had his birthday party at the Erlanger Hospital. That's not a place for a birthday party for a little boy. But that's what we did. And it was terrible. And I don't want to go back, Lord, please. I came out of the ordeal with a chronic illness that has been managed pretty well and got my life back. And one of the benefits of that terrible ordeal, that terrible imposed rest, that that terribly vicious imposition of cessation from labor was I realized something. One, I am not the church of Jesus Christ. But do have a role in it. But I am not it. Now, I could have told you beforehand that that was the case. But I don't know if I meant it. 
Because when a church plant is new and as a pastor, it feels kind of like having a toddler or, in our case now, a puppy. And one of the things about having a toddler or a puppy is that you shall not, this is a command of parenting, ever take your eye off of them for even a second. Why? Because they will electrocute themselves, strangle themselves, fall off of something, climb onto something they shouldn't be on in preparation to fall off of it. You have to watch them. And it's exhausting. And young Rock Creek and young inexperienced me, I just felt like I was just trying to watch stuff all the time. And I feel a lot of that now. And when I was in that imposed sabbatical, I realized I can't do anything. Like literally, I'm just stuck here in a bed. My desires are broken. My energy's gone. I can't do anything. And then the next question is, well, will the world continue to exist then? Well, I came out and was happy to learn that it had. Somehow, some way, while I was off for two months, the entire universe continued to go along just fine. God never woke me in the morning. He's like, how do you do that? Give orders to the morning thing again? Well, I learned I wasn't the church, but I also... got more acquainted with this idea that if the church were going to be what we hoped it would be, this vivid depiction of the wealth and wonder of our Savior, a one another in community that existed for the benefit of our neighbors in word and deed, if that was ever going to fully happen, then it would have to be the case that the spirit of the resurrected Christ would have to be so animating in this congregation that there would be way more life teeming from it than had anything to do with me. I would have a role. Corby has a role. Elders and deacons would have a role. Staff people would have a role. All of us would have a role, but there would be something besides us, beyond us, moving us as a body. And it's amazing to me to think, like 15 years out from that, that that's happening. It has been happening. It continues to happen. And that helps me to go into a sabbatical. Because the church is not me. The church is way more than any of us, but we're all a part of it. And it's animated by the Spirit of Christ who has propped himself up against the ruin of this world. That is a great joy to me, that there's so much stuff going on. For instance, the, tomorrow night, there's a talk about anxiety and fear. I don't know why we would talk about something like that. I guess some people have those things. That is a joke. I know exactly why they're talking about those things. But I love it that it's happening. And you know what I love extra more about it? You've heard me say things like this before. Is that so far as I know, I didn't have anything to do with it happening. That's my favorite stuff to happen in the church. I may have been asked permission. Was I? I don't know. Okay. I was asked permission. It's a moving experience for me. No, I love it. Someone says, hey, can we do this? I'm like, do I have to do anything? No. Awesome. Fantastic. Go for it. No, that's not what I say. But I am thrilled when folks, when activity emerges, when people are thinking of how they may reach out, when people are thinking of how they care for their neighbors, when people are thinking, how do we tend to men? How do we tend to women? How do we tend to kids? And and it's because the spirit of life is dwelling in the life of this congregation. That thrills me. And reminds me that I'm not the church, I'm just a small part of it. 
should help us not to forget his benefits because he forgives sins and heals diseases and satisfies desires with good things. He's the one who shows us compassion. So that's a benefit to have learned those things. And I'm going to try to keep remembering those things when I have to do what feels like leaving in the middle. I wanted to share another benefit quickly that I have gathered from this congregation. As we enter into this season of transition for our family, we have a boy going off to college, graduating high school, and there will be a tremendous honor to get to be in a special way with our family this summer. This week, for a small group, our last small group meeting, the group that I lead each week, and I love these folks. Most of them go to Little Lake. I called a couple of the women there to try to gauge how injured would people be if I didn't come to the last group tonight because there was a baseball game. But it was only in McMinnville, which is just around the corner an hour and a half from here. And one of the ladies said, oh, I sure hope you'll go to that game. And one of them said, I'm going to be mad at you if you don't go to that game. Not, I'm going to be mad if you don't go to the church function. I'm going to be mad if you don't go to the game. Watch your son play baseball. And I'm thankful that this church has let me be a dad and a husband that... I don't think, and you'll have to hear from them privately about it, I don't think my kids understand how terrible it is to be a pastor's kid. You hear all these stories about PKs and all that. I don't know if they know about that. They might say, but I don't think they do. Because y'all are kind to them, and you're kind to me and Kathy. And you let me be a dad. And you say things like, if you, don't come to, if you come to the church meeting and miss a baseball game and your son's senior season, we're going to be mad at you. Not vice versa. Well, that's a fantastic gift. And it's a gift of trust. And it's a gift of empathy. It's a gift of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's an enormous gift to me. Because the reality is, for all of us here, our sanctification, our life with God... I was told this when I came here, I was, I was told this in seminary, that this whole idea of doing everything equally well or balance, do balance your priorities and all that, like that's, that's a Greek idea, but it's not a biblical one. And in fact, it's impossible for finite creatures. The reality is our life is a lot more like spinning plates, like a carnival dude, circus dude, spinning plates, you get one spate plate spinning and then the others start to wobble so you turn away from that and you get the others spinning again and so they would tell us in seminary if you want to be a great student you're going to be a terrible father if you want to be a great father you're probably not going to pray enough if you want to pray enough you're not going to be a good enough pastor they were just trying to help us make sure we understood that part of not being the messiah and just being a person is that you can't be all the places and all the at all the time which means you have to know you're failing people. That's the hardest part about pastoring to me. Is all I think about is how many people right now today that I haven't gotten back to or that I feel like I'm failing in some way. Because I can't be in all the places. But y'all have let me, when necessary, 
spin the plate of family so I can be a dad and a husband. And my family lets me spin the plate of church when that's the, the time that's given. And you've let me pray, and you're letting us rest, and we're really thankful. And that is a benefit that I count as a generosity from God through you. How can you quit in the middle? You have to be able to praise the Lord. Bring him into focus when you're stuck inside yourself. You have to realize that it's not ourselves that we're promoting, but, but him and that our joy is that promotion. And we have to remember to forget not all his benefits. When I first started preaching, our sort of Hinkle Yoda, Don Dutton, who says all the best things in all the best ways, said to me in one of my early sermons, and you may think, well, why did not you listen to him? If you talk that weird way. He said this to me. Now, Eric, you ain't got to dump the whole dump truck on us each week. You get to come back next week. And if you ever want me to tell you all the kinds of things he said, I can, and you will laugh and think, wow, that's pretty good. But he knew something that I needed to know. When you are young, when you're new, you've just been to seminary, you like know all this stuff, and you feel like you've got to tell everybody all the stuff all the, all the time. And you're like, yeah, don't you do that now, still 18 years in, probably. But he reminded me that I get to come back next week. That I'm in a long haul here. We're playing a long game. And Wendell Berry said, to love a place, you have to have some prospect of staying there. And so that was, that's what reassures me, and I want to say by way of reassurance to you, if you care, is I'm not quitting in the middle. Don Dutton has told me I get to come back. And so that'll be the plan, is that we'll come back, uh, Lord willing, and the crick don't rise, as they say. And we'll be back in August, and we'll be grateful along the way for your prayers and your tremendous generosity to us, for which we are always debtors and always grateful. Thank you. Amen.